This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. We are going to be in Exodus 32, picking up where we left off. And where we left off was the end of kind of a, boy, it's been three months of going through the tabernacle and this vision that God has for the the children of Israel and how they're going to connect and how God's going to tabernacle with them and they're going to spend life together. And this is going to be awesome. He saves them from Egypt, redeems them with a price, leads them out of the wilderness, and now they can see this perfect order for the universe, but there's only one problem. He's only told Moses this plan. The rest of the people of Israel have been sitting down at the bottom of the mountain for 40 days, not hearing this grand vision for what life is going to be like. And they go, part of their journey is they decide they'd like to go Egyptian and they want to start doing it. So that's where we pick up. This is the famous story of the golden calf. Most of you have heard it. You've seen cartoon character. You've done flannel boards. This is one of those stories that comes up all the time. And when you get to a story like this and approaching it as a Bible student, like you have to start thinking, okay, I know there's a story here and there's people dancing around a cow and I've seen the artwork for that. Well, what's God trying to tell us through this passage? Like what's being said here? What is it about the journey? And if Exodus is this journey from being slaves to being children of God, this is part of that journey. And I'm going to argue as we go through this, part of the journey is recognizing your sin, right? And that you get this. This is really their first chance of freedom. God gives them the law and then Moses goes up on the mountain and they think Moses is dead or gone, right? Because he went up into a fiery mountaintop. He went into the volcano. And now you've got these people just with all the freedom, and they don't know what to do with all this freedom that they have. So that's where we're at. That's the context of what's going on. And we'll start in verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us for as for this Moses, this Moses, it's like they didn't quite know him that well. The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And what they do know is that he went up into this smoky, fiery brimstone thing that was on top of Mount Sinai. Um, It would be a rational thing to think he is a poof of smoke at this point. Um, And he's gone. So Moses uh, was up there. He's been up there 40 days. You have to go all the way back to Exodus 24, verse 18, where it says that he went up onto this mountaintop. So that tells you how long we've been hanging out with Moses talking to God on the mountaintop. So um, the tough part about this passage is Moses and us as readers of this book, we now know what it's supposed to look like. We got the vision of the tabernacle. We got this vision of priests with their robes and this sacrificial routine of just acknowledging their sin, washing and cleansing, coming into the presence of God. The people don't have this vision yet. It hasn't been communicated to them. And I'm not making excuses for them. But I think it's a, it, we need to understand that as readers, we see the end vision. And I think in our lives, God sees the end vision in our life. But we as people on a journey don't see that. And they don't either. And the first thing they're going to do is party. So not seeing a reason for God's delay, the temptation then is to 
either stumble and forget about this law. Because remember, God spoke directly to all the people. They've all heard the law, the Ten Commandments. Or they can persevere and wait. And I think that's part of what we're dealing with, too. We've been waiting for Jesus for almost 2,000 years. And the decision of Christians is, do we persevere and wait? Or do we live like there was never a resurrected Christ on the earth? And what do you do with that? So that's a tough thing. What they do in their waiting is they make false gods. And I don't think this is something it's easy to dismiss the Israeli people as these foolish people that made this horrible, dumb mistake. In fact, in rabbinical tradition, this is considered the most shameful moment for the Jewish people. And you think, but we all do this. When we're asked to wait for things, we tend to occupy ourselves. You ever been in a waiting room? And you start by twiddling your thumbs and then you start looking at the clock and then you start taking the magazine on the table and ripping off little bits of paper and throwing it at the garbage can. And the next thing you know, you're in a full-on garbage can tossing game with other people in the waiting room and you've completely distracted yourself from what you're there to wait for in the first place. I think distraction is a really human thing to do when you're, when you're asked to wait for things. You find other things to put your mind on. So the people gathered together... They have popular opinion, and a rule of nature for humanity is when people grumble, they grumble with each other, and they start to grumble. So they gather together, and they come up to Aaron, um, and they want this kind of God that they're going to be able to do. So they want to be led, and they want to have a clear path. And I remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about that idea of just, wouldn't it be nice to have a clear path, right? In fact... One of the ideas I sat on all week this week was Levi. I remember at the end of last week, he kind of said, pretty much all of this has been setting things aside to make them sacred, sacred for God. The oil, the lamp, the priesthood, all this is about setting things aside. And I thought that's a really interesting idea. And the opposite of setting things aside is doing exactly what the, the children of Israel are doing at the bottom of the hill. They're setting nothing aside, right? And what they do set aside, they do it in sin or they do, they set the wrong things aside. So listen to how that works. And Aaron said to them, verse 2, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that you brought out of the land of Egypt. Notice the difference between the vision God gave to Moses and what happens down at the bottom of the hill. Instead of making things sacred and setting them aside, this is like the, the flip side. This is the evil twin brother of that, right? They're not setting things aside. Instead of giving things to God, they give things to Aaron. Uh, instead of letting God do things, that he fashions it with an engraving tool. So it seems that Aaron, the brother of Moses, the future high priest, is complicit in this sin. And he's actually part of it. They're all ready to give this offering. And remember in Exodus 25 too, God wants that gold for a different purpose, right? So the people are ready to give up some of this gold. But there's a few differences in how they do this. Um, people give everything they can when they're ready to idolize something. And you basically look at somebody's wallet, you know what they worship. Right? It's where they spend their excess money. After they've paid their bills, what do they spend their money on? And that tends to be what they put their love and attention towards. Right? So you could even say these people are, are anxious to give their money to do this. 
because God says to take a willing offering with Exodus 35.5. That's the Hebrew word lakah. The word in this passage is not the same thing. It's a different kind of taking. It's parak, and it means to tear off or to rip or break. So the people, it says, broke off the golden earrings. It, you could interpret that very accurately to mean that they would go home and rip the earrings out of their wives' ears because it's to tear or break or rip something away from. So when God asks for an offering, it's a willing offering from the heart. This offering is to go home and take or rip these things out of the hands of your sons, your daughters, and those sorts of things. It's a very different kind of word. And the parak, the passage used in, in this passage, happens to be that far more violent version of it. So does Aaron think that this exempts him from the sin, right? So is this idea of um, he received gold from their hand, he fashioned it with an engraving quill, made him mold the calf. Then they said, this is your God, small g God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So as he's doing this, are they making this cow to represent the God that just led them out of Egypt? And that's one kind of thought on this. So to make a calf represent this new God, is also a piece here. In Genesis 15, 9, we see the same word for calf. And calf, I think, every time I've heard this story, I've heard of calf as like a baby calf, like a young, new, fresh calf. But this word actually in Genesis 15, 9 describes a three-year-old full-grown bull. What it means is young in the sense of it's just reached, reached its prime, right? It's now a full-grown bull and that's the perfect time to like butcher it and eat it because it's in its it's in its strength at that point. It's all downhill from there, you know. So for humans, it would be you know that same idea when you get to be full grown, full size, ready to go. You're in the prime of your life. That's the word for calf that's used in Genesis 15:9. They attached three years to it. Here they don't say three-year-old calf, but they use the same kind of word for that calf. It's not necessarily a baby, is my point. In other words, and then it occurred to me, this would be uh, you know, as they collect the gold to build this calf, this is the first bull market in history. Oh. All right, okay, I'll keep going. <laughs> bull market? Uh, no. I got it. <laughs> Has anybody been to New York and seen the big bull out in front of the stock exchange? It would be that kind of bull which is an odd thing for a Christian country to put that kind of symbol outside of its stock exchange, right? And to use a bull to symbolize that trade in money probably comes from these traditions. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that you brought out of the land of Egypt. They said, Aaron seems to be silent here. The people are starting to do all the talking where Aaron was complicit and then he started to facilitate. Now he's lost control of this mob. He's not really even there. So you see an example of like not Moses leadership, right? This is kind of a leadership where it's being run by the poles. Whatever the people think, Aaron's just going to facilitate that to facilitate it and stay out of conflict. So it's what they want, but that's not going to get Aaron out of his being complicit in this situation. But he's got a mob on his hands, a mob of people that are sick of waiting for Moses to come back. And they're sick of living under this law where they can't do what they want to do, right? So... They make an image for God. They make an image of God. And they ascribe these human falsehoods to a true God with a very deep lie. 
they start basically doing things in the name of a God that asked them not to do that. This is why this is a really, if there are some sins that are worse than others, they took the very first commandment that God gave them and they're about to do the exact opposite. And they know darn well that they're doing the exact opposite. They're doing this with the knowledge of what God wants in their life. They're still doing the wrong thing. And again, before we just say bad Hebrews, we do that too. After we come into a relationship with God and Christ, sometimes we do the wrong things. And it's often an immature Christian that does a lot of backsliding, right? And they constantly go back into that old lifestyle, their old decisions. And before they break those patterns, they have to deal with this cycle in their life where they're still doing the same things. So another way is that maybe Aaron is trying to take the glory of God's work away from God. Because they're not denying that God got them out of Egypt, right? They're building a calf to represent that God, but they're representing a different kind of God. And there's something really weird there. So they're translating their faith and making their God into something that God said he never was. Akin to this, as I remember in college, I ran into a guy that was justifying that if Jesus were alive today, he would smoke marijuana, right? And his Jesus was the marijuana smoking Jesus. It's a ridiculous idea, but you will, if you haven't already, run into people that have these kooky ideas, and it's the same thing here. My God is the God that's okay with partying and reveling with no control in a mob-like atmosphere. So they're reshaping God to be in their own image. Or worse yet, my God only wants me to show up on Sunday mornings and sing a couple songs and take some notes during the sermon, and then I'm good with my God. And that's not a biblical version of what a Christian lifestyle should look like, right? So they're reshaping God to be what they want it to be. And when you control who your God is by making that image, you're doing the first commandment what God told you not to do. He is the great I am. He exists before human exists. That's a heavy philosophical concept, but am I making it kind of clear and easy to understand? By shaping God, they're controlling their God. That's the wrong way to do this. So, verse 5, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Oh, also take note in verse 4, it's very clear that the the Bible wants us to know that there was an engraving tool used that made a molded calf. That this thing didn't just magically appear, which is going to be the lie that comes in a few verses. So the Bible wanted to just take note that it was crafted with a tool. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Now he's going a whole other step forward instead of just letting the people do what they want to do. Now he's actually trying to take leadership back by going to the next step. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Who who doesn't want a feast? And then they rose early on the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. This sounds like a great night right? Or a great day. This sounds wonderful, but there's some problems with this wonderful. Um, First of all, he hasn't been anointed yet, and Aaron doesn't know about the plan that we just read about the last couple months. So what he's doing is he's acting on behalf of God without being anointed by God. He's taking the priesthood. He's not being given the priesthood. And there are tons of people in the ministry that take the ministry, and they were never anointed to do the ministry. And that's a sad situation when that happens. I think of like TV evangelists and things like that. So in pretending that Yahweh is a giant cow, Aaron is now 
making this massive mistake and you think this is going to be the new high priest because Aaron's going to get that position after making these kinds of mistakes. The feast to the Lord is clearly not what he had been talking about with Moses. This is not a feast to the Lord. The burnt offerings and peace offerings seem like similar offerings, but these aren't the ones God told them to do and they're not being done in the way God said to do it, which means they're kind of following Egyptian religious practices because these would have been things they learned from back when they were in Egypt, not things they learned from the God-Moses conversation that we just got done with. Last thought. It's interesting how in sin, it often looks like something like holiness. And I read through verses five and six, and it looks something like holiness, but it's not. It's still selfish. And you see that oftentimes with people that put on the vestiges of the Christian faith, but they're really acting in their own self-interest. And in the New Testament, they talk about wolves in sheep's clothing. They dress up like they're holy and nice and good people, but on the inside, they're not, right? And of course, one of my favorite lines ever in a movie was when they find Strider and the hobbits are talking about him, and they say, do you think he's good? And then they say something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, you know, I thought he would feel more, he would look more fair and feel more foul, but he actually is quite the opposite, you know? And this idea of like, when people look all glossy, sometimes there's something that's not right there. Well, that's what's going on. Aaron's taking this role of the priest. He's doing these offerings. They're going to sit down and eat and drink. But this is what essentially, that's an act of rebellion and selfishness they couldn't wait the amount of time they were supposed to wait. And they're going to have that celebration a bit early. It's interesting that God or Moses is about to ask them to start working. And in the kingdom, because they just got this big blueprint for a tabernacle, right? Their job, what Moses is on his way down from the mountain to do, is to tell them to get to work. And the opposite is what they do. When humans get to choose what to do, we waste time. We're amazing at play and and just frivolity and doing nothing. It's what we do really well. But in the kingdom, God asks his people to get to work and to do a job. So I thought that was an interesting contrast. Their instinct is to lounge, feast, and play, and God's call for them is going to be to work and then play. We flip it, right? They rose early. That's an interesting passage in verse 6. They were anxious to do this. You don't get up early unless you're super excited to do something. Like Christmas morning, like when your kids are still sleeping and you get to pounce on them to wake them up. Like there's things that you get excited to do, right? You got a brand new job, you wake up at like three in the morning to get start your first day of work. You're excited about the day. When they it says they rose early to do this, they didn't just like passively go into sin, they were anxious to go into this sin, right? Most interpreters and most people that look at this passage, the word play is kind of an interesting thing. It's usually interpreted as a large sexual orgy because that was Egyptian practices, right? So when you had this kind of feast, all that, you know, don't covet your neighbor's wife. For the feast day, that's gone. Just go ahead and have sex with your neighbor's wife. So a lot of kind of complete abandonment of any social rules, of norms, Um, They can pay the consequences tomorrow, but they can eat, drink, and do whatever for one night. 
Um, another way to interpret play is the way we interpret play, which is they all settled in for a game of Catan, right? So they had a big feast, they played some kickball, or they had a game of kind of Thanksgiving football out in the backyard. But most artists, most traditional interpreters felt like this was a lot more wicked than that. I'll give you another possible interpretation. If you look at the word play, um, sakak is the word for it. It actually means to laugh at something or to make sport of something and not in a good way, right? I'll give you a couple examples. We've seen this word back in Genesis 1717, and I'm talking about the very last word of verse six, that play. When Sarah is mocking God and she says, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Ha, 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 ha and she laughs at God, the word sakak is used there. She was mocking God. I remember God stops and says, why are you laughing at me? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh at you. Yes, you did. I'm God, I saw you laugh at me, right? Another place it got used is when Lot was trying to tell his sons that the city of Sodom is gonna get destroyed. His sons laughed at him. They played with him, Genesis 19:14. Potiphar's wife, when she accuses Joseph, she accused Joseph at, at scorning and laughing at her, that he was mocking her, Genesis 9, 39, 14. See how the word play is interpreted as a very negative play? To play with someone or to do it when they use that word, it usually means to make sport of somebody, to play with, like a cat plays with a mouse and does it with great glee and then kills it. When Samson is played with by the Philistines, this is the same word that gets used. When they mocked him in their in their Philistinian thing and they tied him to the pillars, Judges 16.25. It's the same word. So there's a new kind of, this isn't the kind of play, I think play is an interesting word because we think of play as generally a positive thing. You know, let's put some chalk on the ground and we'll play some hopscotch. <clears throat> this isn't that kind of thing. This word means a spiteful, nasty mockery of something. And I think they, 40 days ago-ish, heard the voice of God tell them to live a certain way. And for 40 days, they've kind of hung out waiting for Moses to come back. Now they don't know what's going to happen to him. And they're like, you know what? Let's do what we've always done and let's see if this God does anything to us. How quickly we forget the power of God in our life. How ready we are to do it. I think when they say to play, they're actually playing with God. They're throwing God's law right back in his face. And when they rip out their earrings and make a golden calf, they're breaking the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, it's not another God. It's just a, you shouldn't, don't carve any graven images. Well, we're going to do that. Let's see what you do. So they defy it. They play with God. This is what people do. I was meeting a guy in church today, and he had a kid like in his arms, a little two-year-old, right? And the two-year-old was making sport of his dad because every time we were trying to talk and make eye contact, the kid would put his head in front of his dad's face. So the dad was constantly shifting, and then the kid would put his face around here. Then he would shift back and put it, and you could see the dad was getting really irritated with the kid. And But the kid was just in this game of dominance with his dad. Who's in charge right now? And this is a dad who didn't know how to have that conversation with his kid in a graceful and a good way. And these are Israelites that don't know how to have a conversation. They've been saved by God but they don't know how to talk to God. They don't know how to relate to God. And they're just sticking their face in front of these commandments. And I think that's the kind of play that could be here too. That said, most commentators you read believe this was a big giant orgy. 
But this is what humans do. Either interpretation, they're rebelling against God. They're doing it willfully and intentionally. They rose up early in the morning to it. They were excited to do it. They're going to get in there and they're going to make that happen. So I told you we we're going to talk about sin and death. I think it's interesting. They get their freedom and the first thing they do with it is they break it. The consequence for this is death. So when they do this and they defy God and they're not instantly killed, there's a mistake that humans can make is that if, if we're not instantly zapped by lightning for our sin, that we're not then going to be held accountable for that sin. And that's where people mock and scoff. Well, where's your Jesus? He hasn't come back. It's been 2,000 years. And that kind of mockery or that kind of scoffing is something you see, again, throughout the New Testament. And it's predicted in the end of days that's going to be happened. But there's a promise, which was Exodus 22, 20. We've already read it. He who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only shall be utterly destroyed. Well, now they're sacrificing too. So first they do a false God, then they make an idol of it. Now they're sacrificing to it. That's rebellion. Look, God, there's no lightning bolts. There must be no law. There must be no God that's really going to hold us accountable. We can do whatever we darn well please. Let's see what happens. I think this is the danger of humanity is that when we think we're smarter than God, we get a season where God gives us to repent, but there's going to be a consequence for that sin, right? We can show boldness. I always thought this was funny with middle schoolers. The ones that thought they were rebels all, all rebelled the same way. And after you've been a teacher for five, six, seven years, you realize that rebellion is not rebellion at all. It's not even creative. It's the exact same lame tactics every time. And they think they're all cutting edge and bold and whatever, but they're doing whatever the local, the, the, the most famous rock band of the time does. They dress the same way. They look the same way. To be a rebel, you all have to have look exactly the same and do the exact same thing as all the other rebels. And that's not rebellion. That's conformity. And in this environment, when you see all the people doing this rebellion together, they're not really rebelling at all. They're just conforming to this sinful culture that they're in. They're not woke. <laughs> they're doing what the culture tells them to do, and they're not just respecting and obeying God. So God won't do anything. Moses is no fool. He's probably dead anyways. God's powerless. I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay, I've made my point. I'm going to keep going. Oh, there's another way to do this. This is, first of all, there's tons, this chapter can be interpreted through a psychological lens, through an anthropological, I mean, people use this chapter even that aren't Christians because it's a wonderful chapter that looks into the psychology of humans. We are not immune to this awesome cow thing and others. So take away the image of or orgy and outright rebellion. Here's another interpretation. They're just having fun. And they're just burning some time and eating some extra sheep and cows and stuff like that, right? That would be another way to do this. The play as we look at it, and they just go to this, what I would call the awesome cow syndrome. They just fall in love with something that they think will be awesome, right? Like escape rooms. The danger for me is I like them so much, I think they're so amazing that I start living for them. And that's suddenly where anytime I get a spare afternoon, I'm off doing them. I'm, I'm lying to my wife to spend money on escape rooms and she thinks I'm off having an affair but it's much worse than that I have an escape room addiction right and I'm doing that when we wait for God to be amazing in our life or we have expectations of God that there will be 
firecrackers and thunderbolts and lightning, instead of preserving in a still, small, quiet, gentle faith through the years and through the decades, raising good families, having strong relationships, building trust with our friends, being good employees, those things that represent God on this earth, instead of being satisfied with that, we want the big epic moments, right? We want to be talking to a crowd of people in some foreign country and thousands of people get saved. And in waiting for those epic moments, you waste your time on other epic moments, like escape rooms, right? Things that entertain show us the shadow of amazingness, the next Marvel movie that's coming out. Let's get excited about it. Let's stay up overnight. Let's wait for the release of the new action figure, right? Or something else is going to happen and we do the overnight thing because tickets are on sale and you'll miss your tickets to this big epic concert. And most of the entertainment world is what I'd call awesome cow syndrome. They're giving praise to something that may have the shadow of the real deal, but it's not the real deal. You wake up the next day and it's just empty. That's not to say that any of that stuff is bad, right? All of it's fun and entertaining. It's when you shift into worship mode. It's when you start breaking off your gold or paying more than you should be on that entertainment, right? And it tears a piece of your kind of economy apart, right? People go to the horse races and they get addicted to gambling and it becomes destructive in their life, right? They're always going out to the nightclubs because they want that next moment of epic feeling and that's wearing out their life because they're not investing in things that have eternal value and eternal meaning. That said, if I could be even more convicting, I imagine, and this is really bad, sometimes your imagination goes to a weird place. You think, if they're having a party, what are they singing about? And what are the things that would celebrate like this thing? And I thought to myself, they could be creating a set of hymnals about cows. So there could be a false religion forming here that has cow hymns. And if that's the case, I want to know what the cow hymns sound like. Is that bad even? Because wouldn't they be celebrating this magic cow? So you'd think they'd have kind of like these kind of cow hymns and things like that. So instead of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it would be like mooey, mooey, mooey is my nice fat calf all furry or something to that. I think, Grant, you should work on some cow hymns. We get stirred up by certain things. They got stirred up by having a giant cow because it's what they saw in Egypt. So it's what they brought with them here. When you come from an old life outside of the kingdom and you move into a life in Christ, the tough stuff is the things that, the false things that used to give you joy, you want to kind of carry them over into your Christian life too. And that becomes the thing where anything can stir you up more than God. Politics, sports, TV, your favorite soap opera, right? Days of our lives. <laughs> if those things get you more excited than God's word and what he's doing in the lives of the, the saints, that's a challenge point. And it is a contest between having your heart be here or your heart be here. And where you get excited is where your heart is. That's the definition of what's going on there. Or in a lot of ancient times, they talked about the stomach. Whatever gets your stomach going. I don't know how that works. But. So therefore, if those things can be false idols, and there's nothing wrong with sports, and there's nothing wrong with politics, it's where does your worship go? What do you get more excited about? Right? When I first married Steph, I didn't get how she didn't care if she won the board game or not. 
I didn't understand that about my wife. How do you not care if you win? The whole point is to try to win the game. And she's just like, oh, I'm just here to hang out with you guys. And it took me like a decade, because I'm a slow learner, to realize she was right and I was wrong. The point of playing board games is actually to fellowship with the people at the table. And you guys all know that. You're looking at me like I'm weird, but but it took me a while to learn that, because I actually wanted to win really bad and then show my kids they have to work at it if they want to be. <laughs> when I learned that lesson, I found a much more gratifying enterprise to make fun of other people's idols. It's a pleasure and a joy, and it's totally legal in the faith. <laughs> we have license to mock false gods. And I think that's kind of, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but we have the right to do it. If someone has a sacred cow, we get to point, poke fun at sacred cows, and we're right because we have truth on our side. It is ridiculous. And we do this at church all the time. When the Super Bowl rolls around and people are getting ready to have Super Bowl parties and stuff like that, my kids know the jokes are just going to come. And I'll be like, is that the one with the pucks and the hockey? Because it's wintertime or something. And people just look at me like I'm from another planet. <laughs> Because they have this inflated idea of this game where people cross a chalk line like it has some sort of relevance. It's a shadow of relevance relevance that the mob, the culture, has built up into an event that's like a national holiday. But it's a false holiday. It's a fake holiday. It's not worth anything. And that's where it gets to be a lot of fun to make fun of things like that, even though I used to be a worshiper of that sort of thing because I played football and I worshiped football for years. But now I get to poke fun at it. And it's far more fun to do that. But if you, could, if you poke fun at people's sacred cows, they might get convicted. And if that happens, you got to be able to duck quick because things are coming your way. People get mad when you poke fun at their sacred cows, right? Um, and... They take it personal because for them it's like, well, it's not that kind of thing. I don't worship it like a god, but it's kind of like you can see when you have eyes to see. Yes, you do. You totally worship it. That's all you want to talk about. It's all that comes out of your head. It's all, every time I see you in the teacher's lounge, that's everything. Your whole life is about your fantasy league. That's what you worship. And when you start having those conversations and poking fun at those things, first of all, I think it's great because you're naming what it is. It's fake life. And then you point people towards real life, if you can, which is relationships, service to the kingdom, watching people grow and mature and become better than they were last year. That has this, it's not this big epic, got fireworks and famous rock star that's a has-been, gets to sing 10 of their old famous songs, Super Bowl halftime party. It's not that, but it's a very different kind of abiding peace and joy. When you dwell with God, it's amazing. And sometimes you get the firecracker kind of moments. The journey then, psychologically, is for humans to move from this world of formlessness into a world where there is form and truth and life and light. But you can never see that if you're worshiping false cows and empty cows or singing cow cow carols. Cow carols? Okay. Moonals, not hymnals? No, I'll I'll work on it. Given the freedom, and I think this is a psychological construct, when humans are given freedom, they choose this. Most humans choose to not think about God versus wrestling with this reality that we are sinful. 
and the first thing we do is serve ourselves. When given the freedom, most humans choose sin. And that's a sad state when there's holiness as the option and an alternative, right? But that's the reality. And if you haven't figured that out, you haven't lived long enough. I mean, usually we can figure that out by the time we're like 10, especially if you go to a public school, right? You look around and you realize nobody here seems to care about the fact that God loves them like I do. And it's an odd moment when you feel like you're kind of standing there all alone. That's the feeling Moses is going to have when he comes down after 40 days and all his people are worshiping a false cow, right? But he's going to do more than just mock them. He's going to, well, we'll keep going. Okay, verse 7. I hope that was worth a tangent, but I wanted to cover a lot of these ways that this gets interpreted as a passage. Like, biblically speaking, this is a very this is a huge passage. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 7, so we're now back up on the mountain, go, get down. Your people whom you brought, I like how God says your people at this point. Do you notice that change in language? This is how I talk with, with Steph when the kids were in trouble when they were little. Your daughter needs you, honey. And then she would do that to me too. Get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. How offensive from God's perspective. They've made themselves repugnant to God. Your people, I just, I think that's great. So, um, it's interesting that the people seem to have forgotten about God, but God has not forgotten about them. While he's talking to Moses, all of a sudden he interrupts the conversation and says, get out of here, go down. Because God's still tuned into them, even though they're not tuned into him. That's a good God, right? He quotes them. So in verse 8, notice that God is quoting the people and he quotes them accurately. So this affront to him is something he was tuned into, which is the mistake that humans make when they defy God and they think God isn't listening. He is listening. I remember walking with grad students in Madison, Wisconsin, and they're talking about faith and religion, and I was just listening. I didn't want to get into it. You don't throw pearls before swine sometimes. And the one guy was so arrogant, and he just said, you know, here's why I don't believe in Christianity. I don't believe in anything when it says people can walk on water because they can't. Falsehood. I know that that's true. Therefore, I can't believe in Christianity because it's just stupid. And I'm thinking, do you realize God's still listening to every word you're saying? You're still accountable for those words and whatnot. But I didn't get into it with them. Um, they didn't ask, so I didn't get into it. And at some point, their hearts weren't in the right place for it. But I'm thinking to myself in my head, I'm like, people don't walk on water. That's not what the, like, he's not even interpreting it right. And this is exactly what's going on here. God helps people walk on water. The Bible never says people walk on water. The Bible says that God made people walk on water. And the Lord said to Moses, and frankly, I live in Minnesota. Walking on water is not even a miracle. In this part of it. You just got to wait till the right time of year. And the Lord said to Moses, "Have I have seen this people, and indeed it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. I'll start over, Moses. We'll just start with you. We'll get rid of all these stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked is still a farmer's metaphor for an ox or a horse that when you have reins on them, they don't respond. They brace up. This happens when Shadow, when we're on a walk and he wants to go right and the whole family's going left, he'll like brace up and lock his legs and he'll become a stiff-necked dog. So if you've worked with animals at all, you know what this is. It's this stubbornness to fight against the, the reins and to not go the direction you're supposed to go. So these are a stiff-necked people. 
my wrath may be difficult for some people in this room. I, I don't know who you are. We think God's a God of love and love only. That's a very limited view of God. God also has wrath. And that's a biblical concept that's not just an Old Testament concept. Uh, there are times when both the God of the New Testament and the Old Testament get angry. They always get angry at pure and vicious rebellion in their face. The complete defiance to God gets them mad. When you have a child defile you, and I know I don't have a lot of parents in the room, there's a part of you as a parent that you get mad, and I hope as a good parent, you wait till you're not mad to deal with it, right? But there is a point where you're just upset, like, man, I thought I raised my kid differently than that. You get very disappointed. Um, and God, I think it's interesting. This is one of those issues of predestination versus not predestination. If God told Abraham he's going to make a great nation out of him, then what he's saying to Moses right now, is he changing his mind? Is he changing direction? And it seems that God can carry out his plan through multiple means. And given that Moses is a child of Abraham, he wouldn't exact. He could do it either way. Then Moses pleaded with God. And we get one of the coolest prayers in the entire Bible. With the Lord, his God. And he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people so he's given the people back to God why does you got burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand you see the turn of phrase Moses uses there why should the Egyptians speak and say he has brought them out of harm to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth turn from your fierce wrath and relent from his, this harm to your people remember Abraham Isaac and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Moses has been reading the book of Genesis. So those scrolls are being carried around by the Hebrew people and Moses has been in the word and he knows it and he uses the word to pray back to God. I think this is amazing. There's four pieces to this prayer. Piece number one, Moses speaks truth back to God. So when we pray, are we, are we speaking truth back to God? Your people, you brought them out. He goes back to what's true. Number two, Moses prays about the glory of God in verse 12. God's grace is there. It's not an earned grace. It's just there. So Moses humbles himself when he prays. Moses remembers the great work of God, verse 13, which is reputation and history. When we pray to God, do we remind God of what he's done um, and to make our appeals? And then four, Moses remembers the promises of God. In some sense, then, Moses isn't exactly making his appeal here. He's basically reminding God of the promises he's already made. You wonder if some degree then in verse 9 and 10, if God is simply testing Moses. Right? If, Mod's, if he's putting things in front of Moses to see how Moses will react. In addition, God's modeling what to do with anger, because in a few verses, Moses is going to have anger too. At this point, Moses can't see how bad it is down there, and he's making this appeal to God, but God can see how bad it is. So Moses has come full circle. Remember when we first met Moses, when he'd grown up, he, killed a, he was a murderer. He killed a soldier in Egypt. He kind of ran off and he said, forget all this. I'm just going to herd sheep. And he spent 40 years herding sheep before God called him out from a burning bush. 
at this point you've got Moses willing to kind of put himself in the way of harm and make this appeal on behalf of the people of Israel. Because he could say, yeah, God wanted to kill them all. We're back where we started with the burning bush. It's just me and my family, and we can start from just us. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Verse 14, God changes his mind. It's a total 180. This is amazing. It's also an instance where God changes his mind. So for the open theists in the room, the Armenians, they're like, oh, this is one of those moments. God changes his mind. Holy moly. Um, And that can be for other people, for my neo-Calvinists in the room. This is a hard moment. You have to deal with this verse. God can't change his mind. He never changes his mind. But let me give you a couple thoughts. One, there are other spots where God does not change his mind. And he sticks to what he said. In this case, he's letting Moses have a conversation with him. And he's modeling for the first time what it means to abide together. Remember the whole point of the tabernacle was that they were going to abide together. Talk to each other. Make appeals of one another. And God's doing that for the first time with Moses. He's using this opportunity of sin over here to have training for his godly people over here. And God's just that kind of God. Also, here's this. I've always thought the more powerful a person is or a God is, the more able they are to change their mind. It's weak people that can't change their mind, not the other way around. So my God, if I my God's a big God, my God can change his mind and still keep all of his promises because he's that universally huge, right? It's the stiff-necked person that can't change their mind. And so you think of that, if, if that helps you kind of wrestle or reconcile that, I don't know where people are at on all that theology, but redirection is never a weakness. It's always about weighing pros and cons. And when he sees that Moses has the metal to work with these people, then God adjusts his plan and he redirects his plan to be led even against their own wrath, he lets mercy triumph. And I hope that's the God I meet when I go to heaven. The one that can redirect his wrath and have mercy on me instead. And that's the God that we're promised and we're shown through Jesus Christ is with every reason to have wrath and anger. You'd think like if Jesus were like there was a dark Jesus, you would think he would come back and he'd be like, I'm getting revenge on all of them. Kill them all. Because we killed him on a cross. As humanity, we crucified him. You'd think he'd want revenge. But luckily that's not the God that we're promised and it's not the Jesus that rose from the dead. Instead of revenge, he kept training his disciples for weeks on end after he was resurrected. He had mercy. So God doesn't need to uh, necessarily change his character to change his direction, right? Um, If you want to get into that more, I got some other notes and verses here for that, but I want to keep going. Verse 15, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. Tablets were written on both sides, and on the one side and on the other they were written. And now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. It doesn't say if the Ten Commandments were written on the tablets here, does it? Like, I always imagined with Charlton Heston holding up the tablets that it was like rule one, rule two, but it doesn't necessarily say that's the case. It just says that they were written on, and the work was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise, remember Joshua was kind of Moses' assistant, Heard the noise as they shouted. He said to Moses, "This there's a noise of war from the camp. But he said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat. I hear singing. This is where I thought of cow carols, right? What are they singing? Holy, holy cow. I don't know. 
Moving on. This is the work of God, the writing of God on these tablets. Verse 16 emphasizes that point. All law and morality come from God's hand, not from Moses' hand. So it makes a point that this is God's writing on them. Um, and he writes the law in our hearts in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this I shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts. Same phrasing in the Old Testament. The same writing that's on these tablets is what God promises to write in their hearts in the new covenant. I thought that was interesting. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Same commitment in the Old Testament is what he promises for us in the new covenant. Verse 19, so it was, as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, so Moses' anger became hot, largely because they were not good dancers. Um, and if you saw this dancing, you might have been angry too. And he cast the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And then he took the calf, which they had made, and he burned it in the fire. And listen to this. And he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the children of Israel drink it. And now you're going to drink it. No, no, no. Drink it. And I just think this is, dang, Moses. <laughs> Holy cow. So where God turns and relents, a weaker Moses... His wrath gets carried out, and it keeps going. <laughs> a thought about this gold that should have been part of what made the tabernacle and the temple, this particular gold, when you drink it and eat it, the only way to recover that gold is to sift through the feces on the other end. Like, this gold is now going to be worth nothing. And I think that's part of what Moses was doing there, right? This gold, not only do you get to keep it, we're not going to melt it down, we're not going to use it, we're going to mix your evil offering with your feces. It's a very clear image of what that stuff was worth to Moses. And Moses said to Aaron, verse 21, why did this, why did this people do to you that you've brought so great a sin upon them? Good question, Moses. He goes right to Aaron. Aaron's probably thinking, whoa, how'd you know this stuff? And then he lies to Moses. So Aaron said, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. Isn't that the same thing that Moses just said to God? See the parallel? You know the people, that they're set on evil. But we remember Aaron was complicit in all this, remember? <clears throat> for they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. So part of what he's saying is true, but you see how he, instead of engraving tools, now we just, well, but a, a magic calf came out of the fire. Moses, must be God that made that happen. It was a miracle. So Aaron is, our new high priest, is lying viciously to his own brother. He blames the crowd. They're the evil ones. Apparently Aaron's not evil. He accuses others accurately, but then he lies about his own sin. We see this in almost everybody. How many times have we colored the truth to make ourselves look better? And at what point is that coloring of the truth an actual sin? Caring about what other people think about us, because Aaron cares what Moses thinks of him here. There's a deep sin in caring what other people think about you. Just speak truth and let them do what they're going to do with that truth. So he lies. He fashions the truth a little bit claims a miracle, which is false witness. It's not a miracle. 
sounds like he's doing the work of God, but it's false and Aaron is false. And Moses, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, there's no law in the land. I think of the little dogs in the prairie cartoon and the sheriff has to go for like a trip to see his aunt or something. And then all the other little prairie dogs go, hey, there's no law in the land. And they start stealing each other's stuff. Have you seen this cartoon? He loves it and it's made me watch it. There's no law in the land. (laughs) Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, Aaron had not restrained them to the shame among their enemies. Why is it we think restraints are bad? Why is it boundaries are the first thing that get attacked in a post-Christian society? That rules are somehow the enemy when rules have been built up over thousands of years to protect people, right? And when there's no law in the land, the first things that happens is like cars get wrecked and shops get destroyed and the mob rule is never good. It's always bad, right? The people were undistrained. There's this deep sin that gets worse when you bring together groups of people. Moses had to then pray not only for the people of Israel, but in Deuteronomy 9.20, he actually has to intercede for Aaron too because God wants to end Aaron. Because this is, Aaron's crossing a huge line here. So Aaron is going to go through times, or Israel is going to go through times of rebellion, and they're always defined by the mantra, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 17.6, but throughout the book of Judges. Every time Israel goes negative in the future, they're going to be defined that way. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that's exactly what I hear in America today. Do whatever feels good. If it feels good, do it. Your truth is not my truth. And we can each have our own truths. That's doing what's right in your own eyes. There's no law. There's no restraint. And if that's the case, in a world where nobody does an objective law or truth, and everybody does what they want to do, the people that win are the strongest and the most manipulative. And suddenly you don't have justice anymore. You don't have fairness in that kind of world. Relativism just leads to chaos, and it always has historically. All the way back to um, pre-BC era kinds of things. Moral and spiritual relativism never brings freedom. It always brings tyranny. Because eventually the strongest person rises to the top and creates tyranny. Right? This has been true all over the place. You can have a moral relativism and no spirit, and you have the French Revolution, and people get murdered just all over the place, right? You can have a spiritual revolution or spiritual relativism with no morals, and you have like Russian communism, or even worse, Maoistic communism, right? Over in China. And people just start saying you can only have one kid, and they start killing children, right? So both moral and spiritual relativism never work, and even one without the other still creates really dangerous periods of history. The worst periods of human history have always been under a rule of relativism. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes instead of having kind of a godly rule over a nation. The Ten Commandments, the basic rule of of a society. And societies that have common rules tend to be more orderly. So God warns of this in Proverbs 29:18, where there's no revelation, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy are they. So even non-Christian societies that keep a semblance of the Ten Commandments as their rule of law happen to be happy societies. Because there's kind of it's not necessarily always a spiritual thing, there's also a moral truth here. Verse 26, then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to Moses. Remember, Moses was a Levite. His tribe comes over to him, which means 11 of the tribes pick a side. So Moses is basically comes down from the mountain and he says, look, pick a side. Either you're with me and God or you're doing your own thing. And the Levites come and stand with him. And this is where the Levites get blessed. This is where the name of Levi becomes epic in all of human history. They're the ones that chose to stand with God, despite a whole culture going in a different direction. So they're going to get honored for this. Even though, remember in Genesis 34, verse 25 through 30, the Levites went off with to kill all the males of a city because their sister Dinah got raped. Remember that? And it was the it was Levi and his brother Simeon, right, that went off and slaughtered all these people. So when their inheritance came around with uh, with Jacob, they were told that they're never going to inherit land. Well, that's true of the Simeonites, but this act of the Levites here, that that promise holds true. The Levites never inherit land, but the blessing is they do inherit the priesthood. So both of those things get held true. The curse stays in place or God's promise to them with Jacob stays in place. But because of this choice they make with Moses, they're, uh, they're going to be honored in a way that no other tribe is. So being on God's side makes sense, and it requires that they have to make a choice. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing. God and Moses always give people a choice to be on their side. Isn't that kind of neat? Aren't you glad as a believer you had a choice to be a believer? Nobody forced you to do it. You might be even raised in a Christian home, but at the end of the day, when you graduate and move out of the house, you can follow whatever God you want to follow. You have a choice. Um, I like that Moses and God require some sort of action to be on his side. It's not just a. It's not just what you believe. It's what you do. Come over and stand by me if you want to be on my side. There's emotion that has to happen. And being on God's side does re- require a separation from those people that do moral relativism. So in verse 27, it says, And he said to them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from an entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother and every man kill his compa- every man his companion and every man his neighbor. In other words, the people that have stepped over and sided with Moses, he's going to send them out to kind of purge the rest of the two million people of the folks that kind of led this golden calf thing. So the people that willed to have a false god in Exodus 22 verse 20, the consequence of that is death. So we're in 2 Peter 3, it says God's going to be the judge. In this case, Moses, in verse 27, is having this conversation with the Lord. This is a difficult passage for some people. It's not a command for the Christians to, or believers in God to generally start killing people. Moses is claiming in verse 27 that the, the God said to do this. God said to set the camp right. Now, we don't have a record of that earlier in the chapter. Um, but we know that Moses spent 40 days with Moses up on that mountain. So Moses is clearly having a lot more conversations than what we see recorded or the passages that he tells us of. But here we see that part of that conversation is the Lord saying, you need to get rid of the kind of the the leaders of this group of people. So out of the two million Israelites that are there, you know, clearly there's a, there's a small number of them, you know, 3,000 that kind of led this whole golden calf party that they were having. And we get a, 
a painful reminder of the fruit of rebellion and that the, the rebelling against God, the consequence of that is death. So the, the law is broken uh, and they're going to have that. There's an interesting parallel here where the people fall away from God here and there's 3,000 that get killed. If you look in the New Testament at, at the day of Pentecost, there's exactly 3,000 people that got saved on the other end of it, which is an interesting as the people come back to the Lord in Pentecost, 3,000 people are redeemed at that time. That's interesting. Uh, another little passage here, When you're, some of the rabbinical texts will say that the golden calf situation, as shameful as it is, should be blamed on the mixed multitude that came with the children of Israel, that they were the ones returning to idolatry. And this passage, this verse, really makes it clear that it's not just or not the mixed multitude that came with. It's the Jews that sinned here. His brother, every man is companion, every man is neighbor, and brother indicates blood relationship. So uh, as the Levites are going after the the the, uh, um, the Reubenites, uh, there is they're going brother after brother. So they are they are having to deal with some Jews as part of the problem here too. There's really no way to think that the Jews didn't sin here. It's very clear, at least according to the Bible, that they did. And that sin has a cost. It hurts. Verse 28. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. About 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. You've chosen God over your sons and brothers. You've, you've, you've made that choice. You've made it very clear. And the Levites are going to be blessed for choosing God. Even though when Jacob gave out his curses, remember, the Levites were one of the two tribes that were told they wouldn't get land because of their participation uh, in murder over the, the rape of their sister. Um, and they they were cursed in that sense. So um, in this case, they get blessed. And God keeps his, both promises. So he promises that they won't get land. They don't. And he promises he's going to bless them. They become the priesthood that doesn't get land. Uh, and he's able to actually keep his promise and give blessings and curses as he pleases because he's that big of a God. Verse 30. Now it came to pass in the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made them for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you forgive their sin, but yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Wow. That's a bold statement, Moses. So Moses is coming before the Lord. He's asking for forgiveness. Forgive their sin. Verse 32. He knows the consequences of sin is death. He knows that that's, he's just carried out some of that judgment because God told him to. So Moses here puts himself in the crossfire. And in this moment, in this prayer, he makes a, an appeal. He names the sin. You, they've made themselves a God of gold, verse 31. He names the sin. There's no minimizing of the sin. There's no excuses for the sin. There's no, oh, these people were raised in slavery and they have had a poor childhood. None of that stuff. He, the, he names the sin and calls it what it is. And then he prays for those people. I'll go. I'll make atonement for you. And he offers the sacrifice, right? If, a, if death needs to happen for this sin, Moses is offering himself, blot me out of your book. God, I've failed you. I'm the leader. This is a different Moses. This is a Moses of love. This isn't the Moses that wanted to 
hang out in the wilderness and not bother with the children of Israel. This is the people of God having a shepherd, someone who loves them. And this is the greatest kind of love. John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what Moses is doing right here. He's getting as Jesus-like as we've seen Moses get. He's willing to lay down his life for these sinful people that have rebelled against God. Moses is able to take that responsibility, mature, and become the kind of guy I think God thought he would be in the beginning. Sin is so great here that no simple sacrifice is going to do. Moses offers himself as that sacrifice. And frankly, it's still not enough. And the Lord responds. And I love the, the relationship between Moses and the Lord. Moses says, take me. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 33, whoever sinned against me, I'll blot them out of my book. In other words, Moses, no, I'll deal with people as I see fit that I'll deal with people. I'm not going to take your life on behalf of the people. Now, therefore, verse 34, go lead the people to the place which I've spoken to you. You're going to still make this trip to the promised land. My angel shall go before you. And I think that's the consequence. We're going to see in the next chapter, they're sad about this. This is not the same as having God go with you. This is not the God. This is a messenger. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will punish upon them for their sins. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. This is a preview, verse 35, of what's about to happen. They're going to wander in that wilderness for a long time because of this calf situation. Or some people believe the plague could actually be, have already been carried out. So the Lord plagued the people was the 3,000 people that just got killed. But either way, they're going to pay for their sin, verse 34. That's God's business, and God's going to take care of that. I will visit is an interesting phrase it here. And nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. That's an interesting phrase, I will visit. Some people could think of this as that a, a, a prophecy that God's going to visit the planet himself. He's going to abide with us. And it's hard to think then, if you're reading this carefully, as as the disciples would have before they met Jesus, that when they saw that the Lord God was with them, when they came to believe that Jesus was God, they would read a verse like this and think, well, then Jesus is here to punish these Romans. He's here to start a new a kingdom because that's what's promised. And you see verses like this, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. It's very clear. What they don't see is that Jesus is going to visit more than one time, right? And there's going to be times when he visits to give us a path to him, and then he's going to come again, and he's going to bring judgment. I will blot them out of my book. This is the worst consequence at all, to be blotted out of God's book. There's no worse consequence. To be irrelevant to God is to be empty and lost and without your own maker. That's sad. Sin, then is the ever-present natural state of the free children of Israel. And it's the ever-present natural state of all humans for all time. They can hear the law directly from God himself, but give them 40 days without you know, firm direction from Moses, and they're building golden calves. They're going to serve themselves. They're going to worship something. And while we wait upon God to act in our lives, we fall into sin. Idleness 
can fall and help us to fall into sin because as humans we're gonna fall in love with something we're gonna worship something and unless we willfully dedicate ourselves to the Lord and make sacred our service to the Lord we're going to fall into sin it's just who we are it's how we think it's easy to ignore that reality that sin is real it's easy to ignore the reality that when we worship other things we're in rebellion to God we're, 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 we're worshiping false idols even when something's called godly, if it's not God, it's false worship, right? It's how we keep ourselves alive as we start to believe that things are exciting and fun and joyful, and they are for a short time, but that's the plague. That's the condition. We live in sin because of what we've done. We live apart from God, that he might show us the way, the path, the way, the truth, and the life, but he's going to go before us. This is where the good news becomes good news. Is that when God says, I will dwell with you, I will be always with you, I will send my Holy Spirit to be with you and in you, that's a different kind of relationship with God. That's the Holy Spirit. When we purify ourselves and the Lord says, I will come and I will abide with you. Boy, that's amazing. That's grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank for you, thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you stay your punishment so that no one will perish, that we can repent of our sins, we can come to know you, Lord, and that Jesus can be that sacrifice for the sins we've committed, that that punishment that will come will be dealt out on your own son, that there is a sacrifice. Moses' prayer is answered, but not with Moses. It's, it's answered with Jesus, that he'll account and atone for our sins. Lord, we thank you for that gift. We thank you that you atoned for our sins. Lord, forgive me for my sins. I repent. I turn 180 degrees away from them. Help me to run from my sins. Lord, give me a heart that seeks only after you. And in that, Lord, may I just be at your mercy because I know you're a God of mercy. Lord, thank you for Jesus and the gift that he gives. Thank you for Moses and the leadership and the shepherding that he gives. Watching him grow up and mature is a journey and an exodus for us. Help us to leave the world and be committed to you. And Lord, that image of a tabernacle, that holy place where you dwell with us, that's the goal. Lord, we pray for that. We just can't wait for you to abide with us and dwell with us. Go with us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.